You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for our episode today comes from the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partner, Charlie's Fly Spray. I've come up to Glasgow for the Scottish Vet and Farrier Conference and it's been organised for 10 years by Jim and Alan Ferry. So I'm sitting here with Jim and we're going to discuss his life as a farrier. Jim, when did you first start shoeing horses? I first started um, in 1969. I was 14 and uh, there was virtually no horses to shoe in the 60s with us. Horse was very much a pleasure industry and it was the days before the indoor arenas became vogue. All we had in our area was hunting in the winter and uh, some local shows in the summer. So uh, riding schools weren't really in vogue and uh, my dad was a salesman for a dairy chemical company. And one day uh, a farmer said he was only getting the sales of his bulk milk tank if he shot his Clydesdale foal for the Coyote show. So he came home and said to me to draw his tools out of the garage and there was a, an old hand-turned forge and uh, I was mesmerised. I watched him make the full shoes for this Clydesdale foal and uh, and then I went with him when he put them on and I thought, you know, I think I'd like to do this. Before that I wanted to be a vet and uh, as it transpires I spent so long shoeing horses in my years when I should have been studying for my A-levels that I never got the grades to get into vet school anyway. So as it transpires, I've been teaching at Glasgow for 44 years at the vet school. So, so you made it to the university? I made it through the university through a, a, another module, yeah. And you didn't just do an apprenticeship with your father then, you went off with another local farrier? Yeah, yeah, two days a week. I, I went to college to learn uh, welding on a Monday and then I went two days a week to a local farrier called Bob Marshall who uh, whose father used to work go to the shoeing competition my grandfather in the 30s and 40s I uh, worked with him for two days a week and then my father was still shoeing only part time and then when he came we worked all weekend putting the shoes on that we made through the week so we did that for until 70 well Alan my brother he left school in 74 and then the three of us started shoeing horses full time then. And so by then there was enough horses? There was enough horses. Then. And the first indoor arena had sprung up, a place called Muir Mill near Symington Ayrshire. So that meant people could have horses and could ride all the year round. And uh, it was a great thing. So then that was the development of more sports horses, was it? Sports horses, yeah. Show jumping became vogue. The local shows were still a big thing. We got a lot of our work through being farriers at the local county shows. My dad still at that time had kept a dairy engineering business and uh, my focus was in farriery. Alan was in farriery but he liked, uh, he was in the young farmers and he liked a lot of the dairy engineering stuff and we fitted bulk milk tanks and made cubicles, feed barriers, kitted out farm sheds and no we had had our our iron and many fires at that time. We had my sister-in-law's, my sister's uh, brother was a heating and ducting engineer and so he, there was a local factory and we had the maintenance contract for that as well so we had quite a, 
big business quite, in, and in quite a wide variety. A wide variety back in that was through seventy eight to eighty five, and then milk quotas came in and killed the dairy engineering. We we used to get our full years work at air show for four or five years. We'd get all the orders and we'd struggle to fill them in the year. Shoe horses in between, but. Uh, milk quotas came in and farmers stopped expanding and a lot of them actually were going out of business so we had to diversify so at that point 82 we started Farrier Supplies and uh, Alan and I channeled our interest into Farrier and Farrier Supplies with the first apprentice who as you know will be Sandy Beveridge yeah and uh, Sandy's the only apprentice we've had that's ever taken his fellowship we've had a few that have got their associate but Sandy was our first and yeah arguably a We've had two that have won the world championship, but uh, Sandy, I would think, for, as a, an advocate for the craft and what he's done for the company, would be our best, I would think. Yeah. Well, I, I've certainly had one fellow now, Mark Trussler, but I've never had a world champion. I've had, I've had uh, a number of apprentices that I'm very proud of, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I certainly can't match that. And it's always struck me that Scotland, because I think there's probably less barriers than people realise in Scotland, but you have a very high number of extremely uh, skillful and knowledgeable farriers, don't you? I, I get the impression that there's a higher concentration here. There's, there seems to be. At one time, uh, there was more fellows in, in Scotland than there were anywhere else. That's what uh, I think, yeah. Because, sadly, some of them are, are no longer with us. But um, now there seems to be a dry... I know it was uh, my peers, guys called like Jock Scott and... He, he was one of my teachers when I went I went to college for two weeks in 1977 before taking my RSS and that was my college years so that's all I did I went for two because I wasn't sure about anatomy physiology and Jock Scott was really really good and he dropped for two weeks he just drummed the anatomy of the lower leg and I made sure I could answer all the questions in Holmes's book Charles Holmes's book on for the RSS and I was really proud. I passed my RSS with honours in 1977, yeah. and uh, then I did my associate in '79, yeah. and I got honours in the honours in the theory, and I, I just missed honours in the practical. And uh, my fellowship, I didn't pass the practical the first time, and uh, I got honours in my theory, and and uh, there was some dubiety about the practical, but. Anyway, you can't it. still be arguing about it now. Still arguing about it. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, All I, I know when you passed your fellowship because that's when I first met you the evening before. That was right. Yeah, I in nineteen eighty-three. Yeah, I um, <laughs> and 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 as you know, I what always impressed me about you is that you were under as much pressure as me. You were doing your fellowship, I was doing my diploma, and yet you spent an hour with me going through it. So that was that was the start of a long friendship. You've probably forgotten that, but I. No, I, haven't. Um, I remember Sean and I meeting you, and I saw your hands, and uh, I looked at them, and they were exactly the same as mine. I said to Shona, my late wife, "That was that's a farrier over there." Yeah. And we started chatting. Yeah. Yeah. It has so been a long time. It's nineteen eighty-two. I think it's March eighty-three. But March eighty-three. That's right. So that's uh, yeah, long time going, and. Um, we're a similar age, although you started yeah. a couple of years before me, mm. and uh, you've always stayed a couple of years ahead of me <laughs> throughout our careers. Um, okay, so but why did you decide to take the associate and then the fellowship? What drove you? What was the motivation? My grandfather had his associate. He, had, he was an AFCL and he took it in 1928, I think. Yeah. And my gran was alive at that time, and uh, she was 
going to go and do your associate and be the same as your grandfather. I'd be so proud if you did that. And uh, so that's why I did it. And she lived, she died just a year after that, but she saw me get my associate. Oh, so once I got that, I became driven to do the fellowship. And uh, so luckily, because I was working at the vet school here, I had access to anatomy department and access to lecturers and that really motivate me and help me. So they helped me a lot. I did my thesis on laminitis and, and they helped me collate a lot of the figures and other stuff I needed for my uh, fellowship. And and uh, I just pushed myself and, and got it. And, uh, and because I got it, Alan, my brother, who's four years younger, he was determined he was getting his, and, and he I don't I don't think he's been beaten yet. He was he was the youngest to get his Ever fellowship. Fell yeah, Mac Head I think was the youngest before him. Okay. And uh, so he was. Were you both under thirty, weren't you? When you oh yeah, yeah. I, well, I would. I was twenty eight, and Alan was twenty six and a half. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was pleased to get it at thirty one, but yeah. so we we were all relatively young and. Uh, and of course, there was this thought, I think, then, where people used to say, oh, you had to be 50 or something to get the fellowship. And uh, that, that seems to have been broken now. Mm, and, we've, so. and we've had a lot of young, really vigorous fellows in the last yeah. few years. I think what getting my fellow, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the actual getting it that helped me. I think it was the fact that once I got it, it opened, me, it opened doors to information that I wouldn't otherwise have got you know I got to meet people through the Worshipful Company through vets through being asked to do lectures and I learned way more having achieved my fellowship than ever I did in the years before it because I got access to different information and uh, as the cliche is every day is a school day and even today I learn something you know and, and the day you stop in this craft learning is the day you should just hang up your apron and give up well, 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 just for those listening, I've, we've just come out of Jim's lecture here at the conference to make this podcast. And, you know, a wonderful lecture, as always, on the hind leg and the hind foot. And I, what I really like about the fact is that you've developed this over the years. I've seen you develop it. You've written in Corrective Farriery. And, of course, too many people seem to treat the horse as if it's just two front legs. Okay. And, and I think one of the things you've done is, is you keep pulling together this knowledge and guidance to us about shoeing the hind end, which is, that's what drives the horse over the jumps or if you're in racing, what drives the horse over the, over the winning line. Yeah, it's so often misunderstood and, and left because the, the cliche is oh, only 30% of the, or 33% of the body's in the back, third, back half, but it's actually, as you rightly say, it's a propulsion, and uh, without propulsion you get no impulsion, so it's, uh, yeah. it's fundamental. So, let's move on to competitions, because they've been quite a highlight of your life. Just yeah. tell me how you got into competitions and where it took you. Um, I got into competitions because my father competed at the Highland Show. The Highland Show used to travel around the various towns of Scotland back in the 50s. Well, before that, but my father went to Aberdeen in 54 and he won the apprentices at the Highland Show in 54. And so when we started up again in 70, about, it took until about 1972, 73, and then my father, there was a competition at Dumfries and... Uh, 
my father went and competed and Alan and I, we struck them, they called it strikers, but we heated the steel for him and he placed, just his first competition he placed and, and uh, so that gave us the bug and Alan and I competed in the apprentices and Alan, my brother, is is always been a better forger than me and uh, even to this day he's, his passion is making beautiful shoes and, and uh, we've not gone in different directions but mine is fixing cripples as I call it, you know, I seem to have a talent for for helping lame horses and so is he but his passion has been always been shoemaking and and uh, so when we do we do clinics we do different clinics he'll do a clinic in forging and i'll do a clinic on mechanics and and how the horse moves travels and how it affects it but we've both got our different skill sets but um and we we both recognize that in each other and yeah it's never really been like complementary yeah skill sets so regards to the competitions we just because we had the farrier supply business, partly I wanted to keep us high profile because uh, we were we developed our own range of shoes and tools and nails and we tried to sell them all over the world but we found that it was very much a niche market. Uh, we found that uh, our market was very much UK for what we had to offer. So after four or five years of trying to break America and, and things like that, we discovered that we just concentrate in the UK, so we made our farrier supply business UK. But then we got the chance to uh, be GE agents for Europe, so that opened up different doors to us. And especially, you know, when the EU as it was, you know, there was virtually no trade barriers in any of these countries, so we could ship stuff, and it would get there the next day, two days. Uh, to the different outlets in the, in Europe, and we were the European GE forge and tool uh, distributors, and that opened a lot of different doors. And we're very grateful to Bob uh, yeah. and Debbie Garner for that opportunity for twenty something years. Hi everyone, I just want to take a quick moment to interrupt and let you know that Simon's new book and his other textbooks are available in retailers online and around the world. If you would like to find the best place for you to buy your copy, please go to our website, curtisfarrierbooks.com. From there, you can choose to buy the book directly from us, or if you'd rather, look on our international suppliers page to find the best shop for you to buy from. If you have any problems, you can just give us an email at sjcurtisbooks at gmail.com and I'll be happy to help. And as of this week, you can now buy Simon's books on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk. I'll now let you get back to your podcast. Enjoy. So let me just bring you back to competitions because uh, your actual competition at your forge at New Mills became huge, didn't it? So if you tell us something about that. Yeah, Alan and I started it. Uh, there was only three competitions in Scotland at the time and we thought we could do with another one and because we'd travelled to the, well we hadn't travelled at that point, uh, Dave Wilson and Edward <coughs> Martin had travelled to the convention and they were telling us all about different competitions in, in America and, and uh, so we thought we should run one. So we started one called the Ayrshire Branch, it was Ayrshire Branch, those days it was Nappy. There was only 11 people at the first one in uh, 1978. And then we held a meal in a local hotel with a competition and it was shoemaking for the apprentices and shoeing and hunter, caulking, you know, hunter fit and front, concave and 
Elon Federer was as the Scottish version of Colkin Wedge behind. So my ambition was to our local, our, no, our national farrier here is a chap called Dave Wilson, and Dave had won the Highland Show at that point eleven times, and he was virtually untouchable. And uh, so in my early years, my aspiration was to beat Dave Wilson. My first aspiration was to get a prize, but then once I got a first, a second, or a third somewhere. I wanted to win, and but more than that, I wanted to not not because I wanted to be better than Dave Wilson. I just knew that if I managed to beat him in a competition, my my standard would be high. I held it in such high esteem. And uh, 1982 was the first and probably the only time I, I beat Dave Wilson in a shooting competition. And uh, and we, we're great friends, and we we went to we, the World Championship started in Calgary in 19. I think it was 82. Uh, it started and then it became known about internationally in 84. Carl Bettison and Grant Moon and Dave Wilson all went there in 84 and it gave Alan and I the bug to do it. So 85 was my first year and Dave and I went together and we practiced together and, and uh, there was a lot of two-man team stuff and we won four out of the five two-man team contests and he won the world championship. and. Uh, I've made the top ten, and I was so so proud. And my late wife Shona and I, she we met a lady there called Florence, and we, she was like a second mother to her. So we just that was our holiday for twenty two years, every year. We twenty two. Twenty two years we went, and I practiced. The only month I never made shoes was uh, December, so I practiced for the convention. I start practicing usually first week holiday time January, yeah, and uh, I start practicing for the convention. Convention would come usually end of February and then I'd practice for the international local team trials, the international team trials and then I'd practice for our, lo our Scottish competitions and Highland Show and, and then Calgary would be going in the background then I'd go to Calgary and then it'd be the international in August and then the competition, uh, sometimes I'd go to Hose in October and then the army one in November and, and my whole life just revolved around shooting competitions. And of course, uh, that competition became huge, and it was part of JNA Ferry. But you've just, um, uh, well, sold or or moved on, and it's now Handmade Shoes Scotland, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, so has that freed up time in your life? It's given me time to yes. Uh, now Alan and I are we're still business partners, um, but we don't have any employees at all between us. We're, we live eighty miles apart, which is hard, but it's it was my choice. I, I've got a fishing business in Perth and I've got a holiday let business in Perth and I needed to be near these. So I, I left Ayrshire six years ago and moved to Perthshire. So I commute down and we've still got shared yards that we meet twice or three times in six weeks and we still see show socially and on the phone most days. And But, uh, you know, I miss our daily contact, there's no doubt about that, but uh, he comes up and we fish together up in Perthshire and we do a bit of pheasant shooting. and. So we still see each other, but and fishing's a big part of your life, isn't it? It's quite a huge part, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you uh, give a talk, and I've seen you lots of times where you don't put a picture up of yeah. you and a good-looking fish. Fish, yeah. Well, I do enjoy fishing, and, and uh, I enjoy fly casting, and, and I do a lot of fly casting, um, salmon fly. It's, it's quite an art, and some uh, some people chill out by doing other things out. I actually go for lessons to by some of my mentors and get taught how to fly cast 
um, what, what do you call it, spear order, and I actually teach. I know you, people. So you also, yeah, so you, you, you do that as a business. As a business, yeah. I mean, I've got two miles of the River Tay with a business partner, and I'm a guide on the River Tay. I take people out in boats and and uh, try and catch them a salmon. Right. Now, on a slightly different subject, you and I both examine for the Worship Company of Farriers, but I think you are now the most senior examiner, aren't you? <laughs> I think so by... by it seems to go by who got on your survived the longest. Yeah, who survived the longest, yeah. It, uh, I don't think it's anything to do with ability, but uh, we seem to be there. And I'm still quite passionate about it. And uh, the company are taking it, the, the company are standing firm in their standards. And I've always admired that about the company. I was chairman of the exam board and, uh, for four years, which is a year longer than I should have done. And... Uh, I, uh, I enjoyed my time there, I enjoyed my time in the Worship Company Court while I was a, a chairman and uh, I miss my, my real mentor and friend Dennis Oliver sadly passed last, well this year and uh, I do miss, I do miss Dennis I must admit, he's worldly well, wise. I'll show you the, uh, I showed you briefly the digital copy of my latest book, uh, The Hoof of the Horse. But I didn't show you that it is dedicated to Dennis Oliver. No, you never. Oh, that's nice. I'll, I'll show you that once we finish this oh, cool. this interview. Yes, because I felt the same way about Dennis. Yeah. He did more for Farriery and the company and the exams than anybody. Yeah. By the way. Well, he examined me from a fellowship, and uh, when I passed, uh, he shook my hand and he he, he says, "We'd really like you to become more involved in the company. You're you're the exactly the type of person that." This worshipful company needs, and I was. I thought he's only met me, you know, very briefly. I'd never met him before, and and I thought, how can he know that about me? But I, I made a point of joining the livery, and and I'm very proud to be a liveryman. And uh, mm. I could never. I've had the opportunity to go and onto the court and be master, but financially, number one, I couldn't afford it uh, because of the time away. It, you, you've from. been master and and there is a financial there's a financial commitment but there's also the time commitment yeah. and I just at that time I just never had a year in my life that I could yeah. dedicate to well, well I always thought it was a pity that you didn't stay on and go on but that's that's life um, back to the exam so so you've been examining must be 30 years and from the time zone we've 33, sort of talked yeah. 33 there you are and um what are the sort of changes, the main changes that you've seen? I think the main changes that I've seen, when I started examining, uh, we had the first failures, I think, that wherever that ever happened in exams. And it wasn't the standard was going down, it was just that I was, there was a generation of examiners that were quite happy to just, yeah, yeah, he's all right, you know, but... We had standards, and and the company at that point, as they do today, set started setting the standard. I was aware of this when we just started. I was a probationary examiner, and then when I examined, there was two failures at Hereford, which was virtually unheard of, and the tutor was up in arms that two of his boys hadn't passed, and it was all the examiner's fault. We only examined what we saw in front of them, and that seemed to be just then two people fail in that exam and there seems to be now it's not that they fail it's that they don't achieve the standard 
and that's become the norm nowadays thankfully it's for the welfare of the horse we set the standards of the exams and we as a body because we do our standard setting days and everybody's in the same sheet I think our, our examination standards are second to none and those that fail to achieve our standards whether it be an associate whether it be fellowship or more fundamentally diploma I think that they shouldn't pass they shouldn't be given a license to practice until they've achieved the standards that we set and we do it. And I know, just like me, uh, you know, all examiners hate to fail somebody, don't they? Oh, we do. You, you, you love to see a good job and award high marks. Yeah, so it's always agonising when you yeah. fail somebody, and, there, and there's a lot of discussion before. Absolutely, and, and we're very conscious, even, and this is no breaking of confidence, at the exam standard setting day, we, we have different opinions, that's the beauty of the standard setting day, and we're all conscious of bending over backwards to give shoe boards or give jobs the benefit of the doubt before we would ever hit that fail button. But once we hit the red button, I'm afraid... Yeah, we stand by it. We stand by it and everybody, yeah, does stand by it. But we're, we'd do anything but hit the red button. Mm. But we're also very conscious of the welfare of the horse and you can't let people out there that can't Yeah, I mean, and I always think at the higher level exams, that we actually have a duty as well because all the people that passed the exam before, what are we saying to them if we yes. reduce the standards? Exactly. So our, our main duty is to maintain yeah. standards. And uh, Yeah, it's maintaining standards and we've altered the exams and some people call it dumbing down, but what we're, I think, improved the standard by making the just two a front and a bark, this a bark, the associate, bark shoot at level, the associate level. Yeah, I think it's, it's a straight bar front and, and hind with different modifications so they don't have to turn up wondering if they're getting a, a curb shoe a graduated bar shoe a half heart bar or whatever yeah. they still have to force them to make sure they've got the shoe board right but i'd rather see them do a, a proper a good standard of work on the feet i think on the basis that anybody that can make a bar shoe well and fit it correctly yeah can by and large do yeah, every do, family do every job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that one, and uh, yeah, we had to fight a little bit of a battle over that, but it, but it was won in the end. All right, I'm I'm going to hit you with the deep philosophical question now. So, what I'd like you to tell me, Jim, is what's the most important thing that you've learned during your life? That is a deep philosophical question. It, it's it's probably cliched, but it's to take each day as it comes and enjoy it because I, I uh, sadly I, I lost my wife 20 years ago and you, I was going through life, a pair of us, she had just actually retired at age 40 from the civil service and we were about to enjoy our last latter whatever many years after that with me still working and, and travel and do stuff and sadly cancer hit her and took her so uh, that made me grab life and that's why people see me fishing and doing all the, a lot of the stuff that can I afford it probably not but I'm going to do it while I'm still fit enough to do it so that's enjoy life while you can because it well that's that's excellent advice um Jim it's been fantastic speaking to you lots of information um and so I'm really grateful hey for the invite up here to speak but also for the chance to interview you for this podcast Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.
We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.